electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job, not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. As the late baseball great Yogi Berra famously once said about a red-hot restaurant, nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. That's, that's exactly how I feel about the Magnificent Seven, a red-hot group of stocks that are equally crowded. Yet nobody seems to own them anymore. Even on a solid day where the Dow ultimately gained 84 points, S&P edged up 0.1%, NASDAQ advanced 0.29%. So much of the market is about these stocks, six of which we've owned for the Travel Trust for some time, which you can follow by joining the CNBC Investing Club. The weightings of Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Meta Platforms, Microsoft, NVIDIA, and Tesla, when added up, are equal to 29% of the S&P 500. So why shouldn't the index swing with them? Let's go back to Yogi Berra's observation. You have to wonder why so few people actually seem to own any of these stocks. I spent a huge amount of time speaking to investors, probably more than almost anybody on Earth, especially young investors. Where, where I go, really, do I ever hear anyone who actually owns these stocks? In fact, I must have a bottle signing for my wife's premium mezcal brand. I don't even meet people who own NVIDIA, despite the fact that I named my rescue mud after the semiconductor giant. Why is that? Well, there are a bunch of reasons. we got to go over. First, let's take the Magnificent Seven as a group. Most of these stocks have high dollar amount prices. Of course, in theory, that shouldn't mean a thing. Just buy one share, a fractional share, even through your broker. But most investors simply aren't willing to do that. They want to buy stocks, and they want to buy stocks under $100. They want it to be like it was in the 1980s, 90s even, when every time a stock went into triple digits, the company would do a two or three for one split. That way, individuals could buy 10 shares. And that's what people like, real people. But these days, most companies don't either, maybe they don't understand your mindset, or they're catering to the big institutions that prefer high dollar amount stocks because they pay their commission fees on a per share basis. Three for one split, three times the commission dollars. Home gamers are sacrificed on the altar of the big money managers. Hey, but you know what they would say? They'd say, we run money for a lot of smaller investors, so it evens out. 
Unfortunately, even though it's irrational, those high dollar amount prices make it far less likely that individuals, that you, will actually buy any of these stocks. I guess you could say they're too high, so nobody goes there anymore. But beyond the big price tag issue, there are individual reasons why it's so difficult to own each name of the Magnificent Seven. See, there's a vast echo chamber of analysts and media that combine to frighten a huge number of you out of these stocks, no matter what. The amazing companies that I'm talking about here have people trying to scare you out of them every day from Wall Street to your media. I'm now going to give you the top objections that I hear bear spread endlessly about these stocks. And then I'm going to shoot them down right on the spot. Let's start with Amazon. The bears focus on the fact that Amazon Web Services can't seem to grow as fast as it used to. I say that's simply the law of large numbers. Plus, they just announced a gigantic strategic collaboration with NVIDIA for new supercomputing infrastructure and software. Amazon wouldn't make that kind of investment if they were really worried about a slowdown at AWS. How about Alphabet? Almost everything was perfect about that last quarter, except for Google Cloud. The cloud division did $8.4 billion in sales. Wall Street was looking for $8.6 billion. Its operating income came at $266 million. Wall Street was looking for $60 million more. Yep, Google Cloud missed by $60 million. And in response, Alphabet lost almost $180 billion in market capitalization. That's right. It went from $1.76 trillion to $1.58 trillion. That's insane. But all we heard from the analyst media complex was Google's cloud business is being crushed, uh, either because of slowing cloud services, bad for everyone, or lost market share, bad for Alphabet. Not only is that a ridiculous overreaction, but if Google Cloud reaccelerates, let me tell you something. This one can put on $180 billion right back, immediate. In fact, it nearly has already with Alphabet's market cap back to $1.73 trillion at this point. Next, the knock on Apple. It has to do with analysts harping on an alleged slowdown of iPhone sales worldwide as measured by shorter wait times. I say, who the heck really knows what the number is? More important, you need to measure the lifetime value of a new Apple customer by looking at what they're likely to spend on various services and subscriptions and products. When you look at the company like that, you know it's way too cheap as that service revenue just won't quit. Lifetime value of a user. How about Meta Platforms? This stock's being kept back by what the analysts see as Mark Zuckerberg's almost, let's just say, Moby Dick-like obsession with the metaverse. I say, wait a second, the rest of the company is extremely undervalued, and this stock doesn't even, it, you don't even get the value of what's app. It's worth nothing. As for the metaverse, I know it's hard to believe, but do you really think that Zuckerberg suddenly has no idea what he's doing? Didn't he pivot from desktop to mobile? Didn't he move from Facebook to Instagram? Didn't he start Reels to compete with TikTok and make it work more quickly than anyone expected? I think he's earned the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't uh, like losing money, for heaven's sake. Microsoft, quizzically, has no bear case. There you go. It's been clear sailing for these guys, that's right. The only thing I hear is that the stock has moved up too far too quick. But there are no speeding tickets in this racket. Their co-pilot AI product is crushing it. Stay long. The rap against NVIDIA is that its products are too expensive, so expensive that the company's losing huge customers to AMD, its competitor, or to internally developed competition. I say the customers wish they could use something other than NVIDIA. The fact is, this is one of the situations where NVIDIA is truly a benign monopolist because its product is far better than anyone else's. Hey, go ask the Chinese. NVIDIA stock always seems expensive, but when you look back, it was cheap in retrospect. Twelve months ago, Wall Street thought NVIDIA could earn four bucks a share. Now it looks like they're going to do 12. Plus, can you really just judge this company as a hardware play when it's got so much embedded software? these days. If you analyze NVIDIA as an AI stock rather than a simple chip maker, this one will be receiving a much higher multiple than that $12 number, not to mention next year's $20 earnings estimate. Is it cheap? No. 
Is it value? Well, versus the others in the Magnificent Seven, yes. Tesla stock's been slammed because when the company reported, Elon Musk said interest rates on new car loans were too prohibitive and it's going to hurt sales. Tesla reported at the height of the run in interest rates. Since then, loan rates have pulled back dramatically. So that excuse holds much less water. Despite these rebuttals, I think their success in 2023 made each of these stocks into their own worst enemy. For instance, look, we had to do some trimming of Meta and Alphabet for the Chapel Trust simply because you have to trim gigantic winners or they're going to dwarf the rest of your portfolio. That wasn't what was happening to us. Bottom line, I wish I could get these companies to split their shares in favor of you, the home gamer. And I wish the bearish analysts didn't try to justify themselves every single day and the media could just occasionally write something positive to go with the myriad negatives that they constantly harp on. But then again, if everyone went there, who knows whether they'd still be too crowded or if they could still go up. Let's go to Robert in New York, please. Robert. Hey, Jim, I have to say, you make us money. When everyone was about to sell, you calm the waters. If you were steering the Titanic, they would have never hit that iceberg. So steer us in the right direction on a stock that has a great balance sheet, Airbnb. All right. First of all, your comments are most needed, and I welcome them, and it's terrific. Come back from vacation and hear these kinds of things. I am thrilled. Second, Airbnb is a stock that I like very much, and I think you can go not higher, but much higher, because Brian Chesky is a great operator, and they almost entirely own this segment. Airbnb, it's good enough for me, and thank you for those kind words. Bob in Missouri. Bob. Jim, uh, booyah, Jim. I want to thank you for all the... Hard work you and your staff put in for us. Thank you. Staff is amazing. We work close together every day, and you cannot believe how good they make me look. How can I help you? I want to thank you. Uh, I'd like to know your thoughts on Hershey, Jim. Okay, Hershey just got downgraded later this evening, and I was surprised. Now, it is a stock that people feel is in this, right in the uh, crosshairs of these GLP-1, the weight reduction drugs. I have to tell you, I think that Hershey's been punished enough. I would actually start a position right here. It's very well run, but I buy it gingerly and not aggressively. Let's go to Austin in Arkansas. Austin. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Austin. What's going on? Well, I've been, uh, I got a question for you about Take-Two Interactive. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. a couple months ago, I got on kind of seeing the hype around GTA 6, and I bought in. And currently, I'm up about 28%. I was wondering if I should keep riding that hype train or go ahead and cash out. I'm going to give you a third option. I think you should buy more. I think that Strauss Selnick, this is his time. I think Take Two at 156 represents great value. Why? Because GTA new volume is coming out. I want you in the stock. I want you to buy more. All right. Now, look, before we wrap up here, I... I, I I think it's important that I that you know this. I know everyone watching loves investing. And so I want to take a moment to mention that today we lost one of the truly great investors of our time. It was Charlie Munger, who, of course, was Warren Buffett's right hand for so many years. Our own Becky Quick has brought us many thoughtful interviews with Charlie and countless investors have learned from his amazing instincts. He will be missed. On May Money tonight, we're continuing our series on stocks that might suddenly work again if interest rates have peaked. This time, we're drilling into the pipeline plays. I'm sharing which names I like the most. Then, just talked about how the bears feel about Tesla. But what are the technicals saying about Tesla? I'm going off the charts with double the Fibonacci queen to see where the stock could be headed. And like us, this market is laser-focused on rates. So could now be the time to burst cyclical player like Dow, the gigantic chemical company? I'm getting the latest from the company's top brass. So stay with Kramer.
Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on X. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Mentions. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. week we're running a series on stocks that can work again if interest rates have truly peaked and it sure looks like they've peaked with the yield in the 10-year treasury plummeting again today now most of these stocks are dividend plays that went out of style when bond yields were soaring but if you believe the bond yields peaked last month then all sorts of dividend stocks are about to lose their biggest financial competitor fixed income and that's why i highlighted some of my favorite utilities last night consistent earners with relatively high dividend yields Tonight, I want to talk about another group that works when rates are coming down, and that's the Pipeline Master Limited Partnerships. You may know them as MLPs and some other pipeline plays with different corporate structures. Regular viewers know that in theory, I'm very bullish on energy infrastructure, especially pipelines, because we simply don't have enough of them. The United States became the largest oil producer on Earth in 2018, and we've held that title ever since uh, every year. We even became a net exporter of petroleum products a few years ago. Thanks to the shale evolution, we can pump this stuff out like there's no tomorrow. But we still don't have enough pipeline capacity to take all this oil and gas from where it's produced to where it is needed or where it can be shipped overseas. A lot of that comes down to political pushback slash world power from the environmental lobby and from those who really want these things. And by the way, local communities just don't want pipelines in their backyard. By the way, I have one in my backyard for 15 years. I never even knew I had it. But you know what? That doesn't make me anti-environmental. Look, I wish it was just much easier to build more as pipe is the safest way to get energy from point A to point B, hence why I didn't mind it. But in the interim, the pipeline shortage makes the existing operators all the more essential. Unfortunately, their stocks were held back as long-term treasuries was when they, the yield started soaring, because this is a group many investors own strictly for the dividend income. But if interest rates have peaked, I think that can breathe new life into the pipeline MLPs. So let's start with the two largest MLPs that I like them both, Enterprise Product Partners and Energy Transfer. Enterprise Product Partners is the big dog in the MLP space with an integrated energy infrastructure network that spans the whole country. The basic pitch for Enterprise Products Partners is a combination of yield and safety. Now, the stock sports a terrific 7.6% yield, which is actually on the lower side for the MLPs, but that's still much better than what you'll get from almost any of the other non-distressed companies, to say nothing of treasuries. At the same time, Enterprise Products is one of the best balance sheets in the industry, and it's been very consistent about generating double-digit returns on invested capital. It's done it every year since 2005, even during the financial crisis. And by the way, in 2005 is when I started recommending the stock right here on Man Money. 
How about energy transfer? Now, these guys have traditionally been focused on the Gulf Coast, the Permian Basin, and some surrounding states like Oklahoma and Arkansas, with some pipelines and other infrastructure assets extending to Florida, the Midwest, the Northeast, and the Wilson Basin in North Dakota. Remember when we were there? Uh, well, it was more than about a dozen years ago. The company added a number of natural gas gathering and processes assets when it acquired a company called Crestwood Equity Partners for more than $7 billion in stock earlier this month. When the deal closed, Energy Transfer proudly noted, and I quote, the transaction is immediately accretive to, dis- to distributable cash flow per unit for Energy Transfer and adds significant cash flows from firm long-term contracts and significant acreage dedications, end quote. And that, does, that sounds very good to me. Of course, the best thing about Energy Transfer is that earlier this year, they made good on their promise to raise their payout to pre-COVID levels. And now the stock yields roughly 9.1%, with management planning to grow the distribution by 3 to 5% per year going forward. Not bad. Payout's relatively safe, too. Energy Transfer has a fine balance sheet, much better than it used to be. Compared to Enterprise Product Partners, this one's got a little more risk, though, and it's got a little more reward. There are also non-mesh limited partnerships, uh, pipeline plays like Enbridge. Remember, we had that on ENB, the Canadian Energy Conglomerate, huge pipeline network. It'll have the largest gas utility business in North America. Once it finishes buying three gas utilities from Dominion Energy, which I think it got a good price on, but people don't seem to like it. I think they're wrong. Enbridge also has a bunch of renewable energy products, uh, mainly wind and solar. They're gigantic in that. But at the end of the day, the company is a massive player in the pipeline space, moving about 30% of the crude oil produced in North America, nearly 20% of the natural gas consumed in the United States. Enbridge specializes in bringing heavy crude oil from Canada down to hubs in the Midwest, and especially to the U.S. Gulf Coast region, where we have the refineries that can process this stuff. The company's natural gas business is also a nice growth opportunity, bringing in natural gas to plan liquefied natural gas export facilities on the west coast of Canada. Best of all, Enbridge yields a juicy 7.7% yield at the current level. Now, after that $14 billion acquisition that I mentioned of the gas utilities from Dominion, a deal that should be completed next year, Enbridge will be a bit more heavily levered than the other pipeline plays I've mentioned so far. But I trust management, including CEO Greg Ebel, uh, E-B-E-L, to make quick progress on the balance sheet front. Hey, by the way, Enbridge issues its initial 2024 financial guidance tomorrow. So no matter what, we're going to wait to see what they say before we that. Now, look, there's another one I've mentioned many times on the show. It's a non-MLP option, and I really like it. It's called One Oak. That's a zero. That's one, like, and then OK. All right. It's a traditional C-Corp that was traditionally known as a leader in natural gas and that gas liquid infrastructure before it became a much more diversified pipeline company after it completed its nearly $19 billion acquisition of Magellan Midstream Partners, the old MMP back in September. Combined company has more than 50,000 miles of pipeline infrastructure in geographically contiguous states with access to nearly 50% of the nation's refining capacity. One Oaks dividend yield is a solid 5.7%. They got an excellent balance sheet. This one's more about the synergies from the Magellan deal bolstering the company's earnings and power than it is about the dividend. I'm old friends with the CFO. This is a really well-run outfit. Finally, let me give you one more MLP. It's called Chenier Energy Partners, which is the infrastructure subsidiary of Chenier Energy. The first mover and current leader in domestic liquefied natural gas exports. Now, the parent, Schneer Energy, builds these massive long-term LNG infrastructure projects. And when they're ready to start operating, they get uh, passed to Schneer Energy Partners. Currently, MLP owns Schneer's uh, Sabine Pass LNG facility and the Creole Trail Pipeline, which connects uh, Sabine Pass with a large number of interstate pipelines. What's the difference between the two stocks? Well, if you want growth, I want you to stick with the parent company, Chenier Energy, and that trades under the symbol LNG. Stocks up nearly 200% over the past five years, but it doesn't pay much of a dividend. Now, if you want income, like we're trying to emphasize in in this series, 
go to a company called Chenier Energy Partners, and that symbol is CQP for you home gamers, and that currently yields just under 7%. I really like it. Here's the bottom line. As interest rates come down, the pipeline plays start becoming viable again. Now, you know some of my favorites in a once-hated, now-getting-some-love group. I want you to stick around for the rest of the week, and we'll give you more groups that win when the bond market's finally going in the right direction. Bad Money is back after the break. Coming up, is Tesla Prime for a two-step swing that could leave you dancing with joy? Tonight's Chartist shares an electrifying pattern. Next. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. Where can the market go next after this remarkable rally over the past month? Even though the economic backdrop feels much more encouraging than it did at the end of October, with inflation shrinking and interest rates steadily going lower, we're still in a bit of an uncertain market. I mean, think about it. It looks like we're headed for an extremely soft landing, but we can't be sure. It looks like the Fed might be done tightening. We're certainly getting a lot of chatter from Fed heads about that. But maybe they decide, well, hey, we need one more hike or two to whip inflation now. Rather than trying to make a subjective assessment of where we are right now, something that's easily influenced by your emotions, you know what we ought to do? How about we take a quantitative approach to evaluating this thing? That's why tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Carolyn Baroden. She's that brilliant technician who runs a trading room at ElliottWaveTrader.net and whose work you can find on X, formerly Twitter, at Queen of Fibs. So what does Broden see here? Let's start with a weekly chart of the SP 500. Now, you know we've seen a beautiful rally from the lows a little over a month ago, but she believes that the SP actually has more room to run. Why? Basically, as Broden sees it, the SP 500 bottomed in late October, and we can see it, it just, this was one of those that surprise people that it didn't go lower, okay? As long as it stays above these lows right here, then she thinks the natural course will be to go higher, maybe substantially higher. Remember her methodology. She measures past swings in a given security, then runs those swings through what's known as the prism of Fibonacci numbers. That's a series of ratios that repeat over and over again in nature. Now, you can find them in patterns on snail shells, flowers. That's <laughs> flowers, actual patterns. And for some bizarre reason, they also show up at key moments in the stock market. I have absolutely no idea how that is, why something discovered by a medieval mathematician can help us predict line action in the market. But that's how I feel about all technical analysis. What matters is that it has a proven track record of working. 
and Fibonacci numbers work. In this case, Broden's Fibonacci forecast finds key levels at 127.2% and 161.8% extensions of the previous move, the decline from the peak in July to the lowest in October. Those Fibonacci extensions give her a pair of price targets for the S&P 500. Now, one of them is 4,743, another is 4,918. Given that the S&P currently resides in the 4,500 level, these represent some meaningful moves. Of course, Broden cautions that these Fibonacci price targets are never guaranteed. It's not like her method works 100% of the time. Nothing does. But she says they're worth shooting for because the targets end up being met surprisingly often. And I can verify for that totally. Now, even though she has these key upside targets, Broden is not assuming the S&P will go up in a straight line. This is really important because it's what I've been talking about with the morning meetings for the club. We're flopping and chopping. As a matter of fact, when she looks at the S&P 500 daily chart, she sees the possibility of some near-term turbulence. Why? Because her Fibonacci method doesn't just apply to the price, the y-axis of the chart. It also applies to time, the x-axis. She can measure the duration of past swings, run them through the same Fibonacci rubric, and find key dates where the index is likely to change course, even if it's just temporary. And right now, she's seeing a confluence, and that's what all this is about, confluence of Fibonacci timing cycles that come due this week, timing cycles that could act as resistance to the current rally, those up there. Uh, third, uh, now, th- this is going to go through Thursday that we're going to be stuck like this. There are a bunch of these timing cycles that are kicking in right now. Given that the S&P has been roaring lately, if we had a trend reversal, that means we might be looking at a pullback here. Maybe not that much, but, like, you know, that will mean something to most of you. However, if the S&P does sell off this week, Broden says you want to watch for potential entry points because we're still very much in bull market mode. The chart makes a healthy pattern here, and crucially, the moving averages are on the side not of the bears, but of the bulls. Broden notes that the S&P currently trading above both its 250-day simple moving average. So we're looking at this and this. It's trading above those. That's this and this, all right? That is always a good sign in chart world. At the same time, she likes to watch the five-day exponential moving average and the 13-day exponential moving average. Uh, for potential buy and sell triggers when the five-day is above the 13-day. Okay, so when you see this line above that, it's now. That's bullish, and that's where we are. I, that's my absolute favorite because I always love to see that. That shows that's the innate strength of this market is right there in that line. Now, as long as these conditions remain the same, Broden recommends buying into pullbacks. I agree. So for the moment, she remains what I uh, she calls herself a cautious bull. Bullish because the chart still looks good, but cautious because we've had such a huge run when you look at the timing. She thinks we might be due for a temporary garden variety pullback. Now, within this market, Broden's also spotted some quality opportunities, and she wanted to highlight one in particular for us, okay? She likes what she sees in the daily chart of world favorite Tesla. I thought you'd all like this. Tesla's the most asked about stock. Uh, she saw its stock get crushed, we know, July and October, uh, but has rebounded nicely from its lows. Now, here we're looking at what's known as a two-step pattern. This is a zigzag pattern with some specific Fibonacci ratios that Broden likes to look for. One of the main elements of the two-step pattern is that the first swing is similar to the second swing, similar meaning it, it, amount, amount of dollars, price. With Tesla, the first major swing down from July through August took the stock down by $86.93. Okay, there. The second swing from September high to the October low took Tesla down to 84.91. So 84.91, pretty close to 86, right? That's what you need to pay attention to. In short, we had two declines separated by a brief bounce, and they were roughly equal in absolute size. With Tesla, the actual two-step pattern support zone came in between 192 and 194. Okay, that's the support zone. So that's where we 
looking for a floor. That's where Broden's Fibonacci method says it's likely to bottom based on a series of key price levels. Sure enough, what did it do? It bottomed at 194 on October 31st. Boom, she nailed it entirely. So far, Tesla's rallied roughly 53 bucks off this low to 246 and change. But if Broden's right about the two-step pattern, then she'd expect the stock to keep running and running and running all the way to the 327 to 328 area. That represents 127.2% extension of the full zigzag pattern, and it's where she often sees stocks going when we see this particular formation. Okay. However, before we can get there, Tesla needs to clear some important hurdles. There's a resistance hurdle right around where it's currently trading, from 246 to 252. Another hurdle around 259 to 260. So you can see where she's, these are hurdle lines that you've got to get above before it can go all the way. If the stock can't clear those hurdles, then Broden thinks you should throw in the towel because it means the stock's vulnerable to another harsh decline. However, she thinks it's more than likely that Tesla keeps heading higher. I agree. Here's the bottom line. The charts interpreted by Carolyn Broden suggest that the S&P 500 might be in for some short-term turbulence, but she expected to keep climbing buying opportunity. At the same time, she thinks that Tesla's got more room to run, especially if we can break through its current ceiling of resistance. I hope she's right, but I, I like the fact that it sounds like the market will be working off that critical overbought position that I don't like, without doing a lot of technical damage or damage to your portfolio. Let's take calls. Let's go to Jim in New Jersey. Jim. Yes, Kramer. How you doing there, sir? I'm doing fine. How are you, Jim? What's up? I'm all right. I'm in South Jersey. Your Eagles did pretty well this weekend. Huh? Go Birds. Go Birds. Thank all you for right. that. Okay, listen. Here, the, it seems like the EV cr- uh, frenzy has waited or at least subsided for a while. But I've been uh, following up on a company called Rivian. And uh, what happened was a few years ago, with the fever going on with Tesla and all that, I bought Rivian when it started to uh, IPO itself, and I wrote it down. So I wrote it down to uh, cost averaging to about $48 a share. I do have about 700 shares of it. So here's my question. Do I stay long with it since there's a lot of positive going on? I do see their vehicles on the road, or uh, is it going to be like, long like I'm going to die before I see anything. No, no, no. You are spot on about Rivian. It's the survivor of this whole cohort. It's the one that could most likely be, I dare I say this, the next Tesla. Great management, great product. I think it's a winner. It will have the money that it needs to be able to get, uh, I think, the profitability someday. People will give it money. I say you stay along Rivian, and if it comes down below 17, I think you'll buy more. Let's go to Tyler in California, please. Tyler. Hey, Big Booyah from California. How are you doing, Jim? I'm doing well, Tyler. Glad you called in. How can I help you? Uh, I've been buying this stock since 80 and doing a little technical analysis. Shows an inverse head and shoulders. And on Friday, it recently crossed the 200-day moving average. I think this stock uh, could keep going higher. What do you think of Dexcom? I like Dexcom. We had Kevin Sarah on the, the other day, and I got to tell you, he told an incredibly, incredibly positive story. I completely agree with your analysis. I think it was oversold because of this GLP-1. That's now behind them, and the numbers are going to come through, and you've got to be long. Dexcom. All right. The charts interpreted by Carolyn Broden suggest the SP 100 might be in for some short-term turbulence, while Tesla might have more room to run. Remember, the short-term turbulence will be a buying opportunity. I hope she's right. Much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive with Dow. Despite a tough backdrop, shares in the commodity capital company have really held in there. And after reporting better than feared results, you have to ask, could the trajectory remain the same? Let's talk. Let's get it right from the CEO. Then what the heck is wrong with the banking sector? I'm sharing what I think is holding back this incredibly important group to the S&P. And then, of course, all your calls rapid fire in the lightning round. So stay with Kramer.
of Wall Street assumes that the Federal Reserve's done raising interest rates. Hey, they may even start cutting them next year. Not my view, but people think that. Might be time to circle back to the classic cyclicals, the kinds of stocks you want to buy six to nine months before an economic rebound, particularly the ones with good balance sheets. Take Dow, the commodity chemicals powerhouse, which had a, a tough year because these guys struggle when the economy's selling much better than I thought they would do. Despite that, though, the stock was only down 4% for the year. For Dow reported much better than fear quarter last month. Since then, the stocks rallied more than 7%. Plus, there's a lot going on here. For example, earlier today, Dow announced the final investment decision of its Project 2.0 facility in Alberta, which will be the first uh, ethylene and derivatives complex with net zero scope one and two carbon emissions. That's clean chemicals. Most people thought it could never happen. Let's check in with Jim Fitterly. He's the chairman and CEO of Dow to learn more. Mr. Fitterly, welcome back to Bad Money. Great to see you, Jim. Th- Jim. Nice to be back. It's great that you're here. Jim, it's a big day. I want to talk about the plant and how uh, that we would never think in the world, it, you and I would never think in our lifetime, that chemicals would have no emissions. But first, you've got a better grasp about the, how the world is doing than literally any other industrialist that I see. So tell me what's going on. Latin America, Europe, Asia, here. Well, in third quarter, we actually saw the third consecutive quarter of volume increases that we've seen all year, which is a positive sign. And third quarter was the first year we'd seen year-over-year volume growth in our downstream derivatives, which was good. China is still strong for us and coming back, not as fast as everybody thought, but some sectors have held up pretty well. Um, Automotive has held up well all year. Despite labor issues, we've still seen uh, good, strong demand. Uh, electronics is holding up well. Data centers, our wiring cable business is seeing good, solid demand. And obviously, food and specialty packaging always holds up well through a downturn. Housing is probably, and construction is probably the biggest drag on the economy, both China and the U.S. and Europe as well. But I think it's important to point out that the Dow that many uh, people might remember is a company that you really want to run from if you think there's a slowdown coming. This Dow is very different. It seems to be one that you want to go to with a slowdown underway. Well, I think we've managed this cycle relatively well. I mean, we, we are a cyclical business. And a little our, modest our, there, Jim. I mean, job. incredibly well versus Dow that I've known for 30 years. Our, our job is to make sure every peak is better than the last peak and every trough is better than the last trough. Um, since 2018, when we spun out of Dow DuPont, you know, we transferred $3 billion of EBITDA over to DuPont and Corteva. We've more than replaced that. In 2021, we generated $12.5 billion of EBITDA. That's the highest Dow in any form has ever generated. And the announcement today puts us on track to add another $3 billion to that earnings corridor. So we're gearing ourselves up for the next peak to be a $15 billion peak. People have to understand that your history, particularly your history since you took over the company, return that capital to shareholders. You're going to get the biggest dividend of any industrial. We paid a strong dividend, and we've returned over 80% of our net income to shareholders over this cycle. We promised 65%, but we've been able to do more. And even in this year being a tougher year for us, the bottom of the cycle, we've still been able to buy back shares to more than cover dilution. And I think what it says to investors is we managed capital in a very disciplined way, and we're at the bottom of the cycle. The dividend is safe. Our balance sheet's the best strength it's been in, and we have the flexibility, which is what we need at this part of the cycle, to make the big investment that will come on in 2027 and 2029 and give us that growth. Fantastic. Now, when I read through a lot of publications, I read a lot of different companies, you get to page, say, 18 to 20, and there's this ESG page, what we've done ESG. You actually, 
it's you've turned it upside down. ESG is such a profit center for you that you literally are doing clean energy and doing great plastics, one and the same. And the more, the cleaner, it seems like the more profitable. I don't think there's anything I could tell you about what's going on in the company that doesn't involve sustainability today. What we're doing in Alberta with Path to Zero is, I think, one of the most elegant, simple designs you'll ever see. We crack ethane to make ethylene, which is the product we want. We make two byproducts, methane and hydrogen. And the scale at which we make it, we'll bring that through an autothermal reformer, which Lindy's going to build for us at the site, scrub all the CO2 out, and take the pure hydrogen right back to fire the furnaces on the cracker. That closed-loop system means I don't have to transport hydrogen anywhere, I don't have to store hydrogen, self-contained, and at the scale that we do it, we're going to build a two million ton cracker with zero scope one and two emissions, and then retrofit the existing one and reduce 1.2 million tons of emissions at the site. The entire site will be zero scope one and two. And where do you think we are uh, finally, not all countries have still gotten into the habit of recycling? Uh, I know Coca-Cola, for instance, finally got that biodegradable bottle. We want that. But where are we state of things versus when you took over in terms of just being good citizens to the planet? We are on, well on our way to a 3 million ton uh, reuse recycle uh, goal for our plastics business. That it will be about 20 percent of our total production. Um, we started up with Mura Technologies, an 80,000 ton unit, which will generate uh, pyrolysis oil from recycled plastics. We have a 160,000 ton unit coming up in Germany in a couple of years time. Um, so we're well on our way to doing it at scale. And, and right now we have the ability to be able to not only take the plastics, recycle them, but also take renewable feed sources and make plastics from renewable sources and provide those to our customers. Well, can't ask for more than that. I know these were things that you cared about when you, from the day you took the job. Well, of course, long before you took the job. But this is the mission you came in, dual mission, and they're working, and they're working terrifically. That's Jim Fitterling, chairman and CEO of the new Dow. So like, I like to think of it. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Everybody's back at the break. Coming up, pop open those umbrellas and tee up your toughest questions. Kramer takes on all comers in the lightning round. Next. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? Dad, over the lightning round. Let's start with Charles in California. Charles. Hey, how's it going, Jim? Good. How about you, Charles? Pretty good. I'm a fairly new one to investing, but I came across this stock. It's called CRISPR Therapeutics. They are doing some incredible stuff, but that is reflected in the most recent spurt. There's been some really good news there about some of the discoveries. I would not buy it all the way up here. I think it's got to come down a little because the stock is losing a lot of money. Let's go to KC in Florida. KC. Booyah, Jim Bra. Greetings from the Shark Bite capital of the world, New Smyrna Beach, Florida. Absolutely. I know that because I learn something every day in the show. What's going on? We want to ask the big kahuna of market wisdom, what is the best strategy to ride the wave of Dell technology and not get bit? I think Dell's terrific, but you know what? It's a point from its high. It just keeps going higher. Buy some here and then wait for a little bit of pullback. I don't want you to buy it all at the top and then say, hey, Kramer told me to buy it all at the top. It's been a great stock. It's Michael Dell's real smart fella. How about Sam in Colorado? Sam. Jim, how are you doing? I'm good. How about you? 
I am good. You know, Jim, I was just home uh, in, at home outside of Philadelphia, and right right around my my, my hometown is a really interesting company, uh, Core Centra. Uh, what what intrigued me, I went to look at the market cap. It's only an eight billion dollar market cap, and they make revenue in excess of two hundred billion dollars every year. Uh, they seem to be growing at a great rate. Um, they have a little bit of debt on their balance sheet, but it's well covered by the cash flow. Um, everything about the company seems Well, this to be- is the old Mercer's Bergen. I went by them the other day. It's from Concha Hocko, exactly. my grandma was from. It's a terrific company. I think you should buy it. If you don't own it, it's okay. This is one of the few stocks in the healthcare business that is holding up. Mercer's is just a fantastic company. I like it even better than McKesson, frankly. Let's go to Jeff in California. Jeff. Hey, Jim. How are you? I am I well. How about you? Great, great. I own a lot of stock in uh, T-Mobile. And I'm a little worried about uh, some of the lawsuits that they have going on with the dealers and stores being I would not worry about uh, those lawsuits at all. I think Mike Siebert has it totally under control, and I think the T-Mobile represents great value even up here. Let's go to Christy in New York. Christy. Hi, Jim. You are the best. I'm so excited to speak to you. I watch Man Money every night. There you go. I like that. The loyal contract. My question to you is, how about Boeing? Okay, Boeing's going higher. I think that this is their year. Last year, that supply chain problems had a couple of snafus with some planes. Now it seems to be clear sailing. I even think there are going to be some Chinese orders. They're going to be back ordered. They're going to make a lot of money per plane. Buy the stock of Boeing. I mistakenly sold it for my travel trust. I greatly regret that. Let's go to Tim in Tennessee. Tim. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Long, long time, first time club member. Oh, thank you. Thank you for being a member. My wife and I own a fairly large position in Cardinal Health, ticker symbol C-A-H. Well, you know, it's funny. I I, I think that Cardinal Store, you know, earlier I had a call in Sincora, and I must tell you that I said it was better than McKesson, but Cardinal, the way the Cardinals come on strong, I have to tell you, I am so impressed with the people from Cardinal. They have gotten it right after being in the wilderness for a bit. Great stock. Cardinal Health is a great stock going at this stage of the economy. Let's go to um, Evan in Massachusetts. Evan. How are you doing today, Mr. Kramer? All right. How about you, Evan? What's going on? I'm doing good. So I'm looking into extending my portfolio a bit more, and I have a company called DoorDash. Now, I know that there's a lot of insider selling recently, but that was about a couple uh, weeks ago. I know the stock for the month is up 30%. I know for the year it's up almost 100%. I know it's almost profitable. It's so very close. Uh, what do you think for long term going into the holidays? I like the call. I think Tony Shu is a mag- just a fantastic manager. It's one of the few that came out during that period that, uh, let me just say, it was like kind of like a banana period. And next thing you know, DoorDash emerges as being a company that I think is going to make a lot of money next year. I put it in the pantheon of a period where it's not been that good to invest. Those guys know what to do. Tony is king. The stock has had a giant run. It's only a point from its high. Let's be a little bit careful. Buy some and then let it come lower. Let's go to Fernando in New York. Fernando. Hey, Jim. Big booyah for you and happy holidays. Same to you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Um, I've got a stock here, Macy's. Uh, It looks like it hit a bottom recently and uh, it's starting to, uh, to rise right now. Uh, it's got a price target of about 17. 
I was wondering what your thoughts were on it. With the, with I'm the not sure about that price target. I think it's selling at five times earnings is a little ridiculous. I think Tony Springs going to do a really good job. I like Macy's stock very much. It could be the next Gap stores, I mean, when it comes to the trajectory of the stock. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by Charles Schwab. Coming up, rates are high, but it's been bedtime for banks. What gives? Kramer takes an interest in a sleepy cohort. Next. The stock market is littered with these broken regional and national banks that make us feel bearish about the team even though the average has been unstoppable this month. Given that tech represents 28% of the SP 500, maybe the nearly 13% that's financed doesn't matter, but healthcare is also roughly 13% of the S&P, and right now that's in chaos mode. With so few of them able to advance going into an election year, with a whole industry often the target of criticism, especially from the Democrats who control the White House. So we need the financials here to rally. Yet extraordinarily, many of these stocks are still mired at levels that we saw during the mini banking crisis this spring that took down Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic. What's wrong with this group? What's alien? Now, some of it's the regulators. Right now, every banker lives in fear of being caught doing anything risky because the regulators got caught with their pants down, so they've gotten a lot more aggressive. Some of it's where, where these banks invested their funds when interest rates were lower, namely longer-term bonds, where you might not need to where you, you might need to wait decades. They can't get it out now to cash out and get all their money back because they're down big on it, huge losses, and that's one of the things that killed Silicon Valley Bank. Now, some of it's the inability to make as much money off our deposits as you might expect. We also have no mergers whatsoever, even as the regional banks should be getting together to save costs, uh, while outfits like Toronto Dominion should come back and buy solid banks like First Horizon. Some that would have been great for first rising shareholders if not for some regulatory issues on TD's end that caused that great deal to be blocked. Stock's half of what it was. But I've been thinking as I watch a firm soar and buy now, pay later formulation, it seems to have struck gold this Black Friday. How did the banks, all these banks, not get into these fantastic fintech growth businesses? Hook, line, and sinker. How could they not have been PayPal, which makes a little money from a huge transac- amount of transactions every single day? How could they have seen a point of sale to outfits like Toast, where if the big banks offered a product, they could own the register of so many businesses? How did they miss the great parts of Square, now known as Block, that are so good for small business sales? They could have offered so much that Intuit has given us. I like that quarter tonight, by the way. I don't want to hear that they aren't allowed to innovate. These banks could figure out a way to do more. They could do it if, if they were more creative, and they would have gotten permission. Heck, the government should want them to do it. Then they could regulate these financial technology businesses right now. They're pretty unregulated. I know that Goldman Sachs tried to become more of a consumer bank with markets for personal loans and high-yield savings accounts and for Green Sky financing home improvement projects. It bought that largest fintech platform, Green Sky, for home improvement in September 2021. Then they sold it two years later. You know what? That actually made sense. Goldman was probably the worst fit for that kind of business. It surprised itself on serving whales, not minnows. They never should have moved into it. Now, there are plenty of ways for banks to get involved in these areas. Hardly a day goes by when you don't ask about SoFi during the lightning round. Young people are opening accounts here like mad. I don't like the huge option business that Robinhood clients offer. Too many losses for those, for those clients. But Robinhood has the right demographic. Put simply, traditional banks know how to lend. But investors know to avoid any company that lends money when the Fed's raising interest rates like mad as they are now. At least until we get to the end of the tightening cycle. And even then, they seem to only want to firm. The bank simply missed an entire generation of customers, the ones that's now taking over. Hey, look, I know Bank of America has some very good programs uh, that are like PayPal. It's got a great app, too. But that's not enough. 
I was stunned, for instance, when we owned Bar San Miguel Small Plate uh, Restaurant in Brooklyn, and no bank competed for our registered business, even though I wanted them to. I would have been thrilled to give it to them, but, but they, they got to try. When we look back at this era of stagnant bank stock prices, I think we may have to conclude that unless something changes, they've become an anchor to leeward in a market desperate for a broader firmament. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries will warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash disclaimer. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.